Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Controversial subjects with the facts can be tense, but we are a sub-science here to make things make sense. We are in the middle of creating two new videos, so we don't have a conventional new podcast ready for today, but we wanted to release uh, this interview that we did with bioethicist Dr. Nir Eyal. He is the one who wrote the newest paper about the human challenge trials. This is a fascinating uh, research paper that we read and talked about in a recent podcast, and we had the privilege of speaking to him. So right now, you are gonna hear that conversation between us and this specific bioethicist about some of the moral implications of the studies we'll be doing in order to fight COVID-19. All right, so we are here with Dr. Ayal, the director of the Rutgers Center for Population Level Bioethics. He was one of the co-authors on the study we talked about in our most recent podcast, uh, which was called the Human Challenge Studies to Accelerate Coronavirus Vaccine Licensure. And we thought it would be interesting to chat with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So you are by definition a bioethicist. So what is what is bioethics? If you can give us like, if a listener maybe just heard the word and not known exactly what it is. Call it also medical ethics or actually usually focus more on public health ethics. That's the population level element um, uh, in, in the name of my center. So um, what made you start to get into this? Like, do you have a biology degree and then you move forward? Like, how do you end up in bioethics? You can end up in bioethics coming from medicine. You can end up in it coming from law, from philosophy. I came from philosophy. Oh, wow. Okay. And ultimately, you, how do you spend your, your work? Like, is it to just understand the relationship between medicine and populations and how we make choices around what, as a society, we're willing to do? Or It's ethics. So it's not simply about what... Um, there is out there what people already support or not support societies like don't like we try to come up with good arguments as to why do things one way or the other so we're going to discuss today something um that would be probably controversial um a lot of people might object to it now but i'm trying to come up with arguments to convince them that maybe they should change their views Okay, that's really interesting. Let's move into this article because it's fascinating. Maybe in your words, you could summarize what uh, you talked about. Wow, so um, so the motivation, the impetus is that, as you guys pointed out, 
vaccine is really our, our most sustainable exit from the current economic, health, societal crisis. And um, any, any month of delay in rolling out a vaccine to a lot of populations around the world is a month of many, many, many lives lost, um, not just from COVID, which is by some projected projections going to kill 20 million people uh, a year. Uh, we're also talking about what the UN calls starvation of biblical dimensions. We're also going to, we're also talking about halted development. So if India and China do not continue their rise, uh, then you're going to see the, you know, the far more premature death than uh, than you would see otherwise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking about very large numbers of lives saved if we can get this vaccine out sooner. Before we get the vaccine out, it's just going to be opening up. Oh, we need to close opening up. Like, it's not sustainable. So how do you accelerate vaccine development? The most time-consuming element of vaccine testing is the so-called efficacy testing stage. So usually what we do with when we develop a vaccine, we first check for safety, uh, some impact on the immune system, and then we move to check if it works, checking the efficacy. And the way we usually do it is we give the vaccine candidate to some people, give a control to others, and we wait and wait and wait for many months to see if there is any difference between these groups, knowing that a lot of the people we're checking will never get exposed to the virus because they will do what I'm doing right now and maybe you're doing right now which is hiding at home <laughs> right <laughs> so we propose instead something called a challenge trial to check the efficacy in a challenge trial you do something uh that i know will give your listeners a kind of shock immediately but i'll i'll explain in a minute why it, it's way more defensible than it initially will seem a challenge trial is where we expose people deliberately to the virus and then you get answers pretty quickly okay the controls a lot of disease the vaccine hardly any disease okay it works same same doesn't work so you and then you move on to the next candidate etc so you get the answer in, in weeks instead of months okay mm. so so the main sort of ethical question then there is like giving it intentionally versus allowing somebody to naturally contract it but that is something that you guys addressed in the article, do you want to talk about that a bit? Like how you can minimize the ethical implications of that by choosing certain subjects, right? Yeah, exactly. So a key to the ethics of this is selecting the participants right. You, you put it exactly right. Um, you want to focus first on young, healthy people, maybe more like two of you than me. Uh, <laughs> you look extremely, for those who can't see him, he looks extremely young and very healthy. <laughs> Uh, um, in young people, death can occur from coronavirus. We know that. We don't even know exactly why. But, so it's kind of scary. But we do know um, in 20-year-olds, uh, the best numbers we have so far are a death is in one in 3,000 infected people. This is, by the way, the same number of death, deaths per population that we have in live kidney donation. Nobody would say live kidney donation is too risky to be allowed, right? Why? Because 
there is some benefit to somebody else in life kidney donation and uh, the person must be fully, fully informed and we check comprehension, et cetera. Similarly here, we would check comprehension and there is a much larger population health benefit. But in addition here, unlike in the kidney donation context, uh, we argue that there could be indirect benefits if you furthermore select people more specifically to come from areas where there is currently and in the foreseeable future going to be a lot of infections. And that plays out in two key ways. First, while in the trial, they're sure to be exposed to the virus, they're kind of anyhow fairly likely to be exposed to the virus. So it's not such a dramatic difference. Maybe some of them are essential workers who simply can't avoid the danger. And they're worried that they might infect a relative or at home, an old relative. Say. In addition, in the trial, it would be only decent to guarantee access to critical care in that worst case scenario that this young healthy volunteer would need critical care at home if you're in a high transmission area in a, an area with a lot of infections who knows if you'll get access or the critical care in your area would be clogged mm -hmm. you know, I, I live not far from new york city uh so you know this is a real danger so you're assured that in the worst case scenario you're gonna get the care you need which is not a full reassuring. Even critical care, even for young people, is not assurance of, you know, you won't die. You might still die, but um, it's all hard balance. But it's not a crazy balance. That's our point. It may be more beneficial to participate for your medical prospects than to not participate. And um, therefore, it's not the kind of area where we should say the bioethicists like me should say, whoa, 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 uh, this is irrational choice, you're crazy, so we won't let you put them, yourself in that danger. That would be overreach, we wanna say in this case. We should let people do what they autonomously wanna do. Uh, there are some very you know, impressive young uh, people who currently are clamoring to participate in these trials and give their names to um, an organization called One Day Sooner. Um, we are talking now about over 2,000 people hmm. who have given their names, and it's growing by a few hundred by the day. Okay, so this leads us to a question that actually when we were doing our podcast, we were like, oh my God, wait, we didn't fully figure this out. So when we actually posted on our community page, there's 151,000 people responded to this poll where we explained what was happening. Would you do this? Would you not? And overwhelmingly, people said that they would. It was like 60%. We, we actually got emails from people telling but us they like- would? They would? They would, yes. Yeah. Yes, that they would want to, from like an altruistic perspective, take part in something like this. It was interesting to us. But when you talk about now, you're wanting obviously for it to be people who are like healthcare workers and things like that. So how moving forward, how do you see it playing out? Say someone was not a healthcare worker, they're just young, they're at home, would they ever, you think, be able to be part of these trials? Or are you focusing, no, we actually have to make sure it's people who we think are at a high risk of getting infected in order to move forward? It's not up to me. It depends on the particular design of the particular trial. That, and there are many actors right now around the world. Uh, you know, we need to line up FDA to tell the producers we're going to approve this on the basis of this. It's a big question whether that will happen. Funders, hmm. maybe likelier, um, the vaccine producers themselves, etc. Many, many, and the ethics committee, the so-called IRB in this country, which needs to approve the protocol 
So who knows what they will approve. And, but if you ask me what I would prefer is uh, recruitment of people who are anyhow at high risk of getting infected. And not just personally, not just say the health workers, but also because of the issue of the clogged critical care system from an area where it's currently looking like in the next, and this trial is short, it's much shorter than, it's much more realistic to develop predictions for this kind of trial than for a regular trial. Who knows where it will be in a few months. Uh, um, so in an area where we predict during the trial, there won't be much place in a critical care system. That's interesting. I was going to ask, in terms of like the bioethics angle of it, in trials like this, you mentioned how you need sort of government buy-in, you need the vaccine companies. There's a lot of coordination of different groups that have to be on board to pass it. Um, does that include public buy-in? Like when a, when a trial or study goes to this point, do we need... Um, I think we have a... Uh, uh, have a visitor? No worries at all. So cute. Um, the, this is okay, the, the Zoom okay, yeah, atmosphere. But I was just going to ask, like, does the public need to... As a bioethicist, do you say it's important that we make sure the public understands and is willing to support these ideas in order for them to move forward? Absolutely. The public uh, absolutely needs to understand this. Uh, and it's a question whether it will. Um, I'm optimistic. You know, the public really needs that vaccine. There are now increasingly reports that even vaccine skeptics uh, say, well, for this vaccine, maybe I will take it. <laughs> and Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Um, so it's really kind of puncturing the vaccine skeptic movement. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what the public approves. And any every any day, uh, more of the public is believes in vaccines than right. is skeptical about vaccines. Have to wait. Yeah. And this will uh, probably increase that portion. Have we ever done as humans, human challenge trials before? Have we ever done something like this where we have given people uh, the vaccine or a placebo and then actually inoculated them with a virus? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we do that all the time. Hmm. We uh, do, this is how we come up with the updates to um, vaccines for seasonal flu. We do it for typhoid, for malaria, for cholera, but this is also, and, and there are also historical instances where it was done for our other diseases, sometimes things that we would never approve nowadays in terms of the you know, bioethics of it. Uh, it was done not, you know, without the consent that right. you want, without the avoidance of preying on vulnerable populations that we demand and things of that sort. Um, but there is a big difference. Um, 
usually the rule of thumb for these child trials is we could do it if it's uh, not a very deadly disease and if there is a therapy already for that disease. And we know that for coronavirus, it, it's a disease that kills many and for which we, despite everything that our great president uh, <laughs> is inventing, uh, there is no, no cure yet. So, um, so that's where it's sort of is justified in this case because of those indirect benefits that we discussed earlier. It's not because somehow directly it's supposed to be healthy for you to be exposed to coronavirus. No. So the informed consent form will really need to, you know, to clarify that. And, right. But, and I, I, yeah. was say I had noticed that in, in the article, it was suggested that this would not be a paid volunteer like opportunity that people would be volunteering on the right. basis of sort of altruism is in other human trials or human challenge trials. Are they typically paid? Is that like a part that becomes part of it? Um, there are different trials and they work differently than each other. The question of what is motivating challenge trial participants in general, not just in this case, is fascinating. Um, my colleague Seema Shah has talked to some and uh, got really interesting answers. Some of them would say things like, uh, you know, I was curious to see how it really feels to have malaria. Hmm. Um, we are going to try to survey the um, thousands of people who want to volunteer to these uh, studies and um, to get their interesting answers to this. Um, I can tell you so far that from just eyeballing the people who are enlisting, it looks like um, many of them have graduate degrees, um, many of them are in work health professions, um, uh, they uh, seem to know what this is about, recognizing mm. the danger, but still wanting to do it. Um, and uh, some people cite you know, things that wouldn't have occurred to me, but seem to make perfect sense, such as my parents are immunocompromised. I, but I want to visit them. I want to, and you know, I. It's one thing not to visit them for a month, but what if this lasts years? Um, I want to get rid of this kind of the infection on the assumption that you can't get reinfected, which is a big assumption at this point, or mid-sized assumption still, because there are some questions about it. Um, maybe I would be able to do it if I do my infection in a controlled environment. Totally. That makes sense. As we go further and further that people are going to be like, Hey, if I know my risk is low to get sick or die, maybe it's better for me to get it now so I can go on living life normally. In an ideal scenario, what would it look like? Like how long would it be? What would the facilities be like? You're obviously isolated uh, in a room on your own for how long? Like, have you thought about those things or are you still just sort of at the like umbrella ideas at this point? So I'm not a, trialist, uh, I hear from conversations with the people who are the experts on this, you need isolation facilities. Uh, we have some safe for these um, flu vaccine child trials, so you would need to convert those. And uh, people would need to be there for a significant period because um, they come in first, they need to be there for two weeks just to ensure that they aren't already infected, which would upset you know, the data. Uh, then they get the vaccine or the control and you need to leave a bit of time. I think that's, I don't know, just a few days or very few weeks 
to let the immune system kind of digest it. Um, and then you expose them and then you need to keep them there for long enough first to see the differences between the two groups. And also uh, to make sure before they leave that anybody who is infected is no longer infected. Mm. Mm. Oh so yeah. <laughs> Non-danger. Yeah. So um, it's a significant period in isolation. Uh, people should make a choice about whether they want to do this. But listen, if, if, if this unfun of being isolated for a little period is to dissuade somebody, I think I, I'm very happy about this filter because apparently this person didn't understand what this is about because the stakes really involved here are much more dramatic than just spending a few weeks in isolation. So right. I huh. want this thing that people can easily comprehend, ooh, unpleasant to be in isolation, to drive out anybody who's not really seriously committed because I want only people who totally understand what they're getting into. That's so interesting because I was going to be like, now, well, everyone kind of has a new... Uh, intellectual comprehension of isolation. Like, it doesn't seem like that big a deal to just go in isolation for six weeks, but that's a good point to be like, well, no, that, that shouldn't even be like a part of people's thinking about this. But and that's also partly why I'm, I tend to be in favor of not paying anything. Yeah, I was, okay, because I was like, I think it, I mean, I am not in any way a biologist, but it seems like a lot of the motivations right now are, have nothing to do with finances and money. And I think that is interesting because, I mean, from a bioethical perspective, when you start to bring in money, does that become an issue? Because it's like, are now people signing up because they maybe are at a certain socioeconomic status and need to? Like, I don't know. I'm just curious. It's so, you know, the, the question of money in medical research and risky medical research is a complex one. Everybody agrees that there should be reimbursement of any you know, travel costs or, heaven forbid, if there are, if there is a medical injury, uh, ethicists believe, although interestingly, American law doesn't require compensation for the injury and you know mm. the ability to to be afford to treat it later. Um, so I think that should be in. Maybe the trialists should be funded to get insurance, to life insurance as well, uh, to be able to compensate in that way. But money is an incentive um, for taking the risk. That's, uh, that's trickier and people debate it. I, I'm, I'm not somebody who totally, totally rejects it for other trials. I just think that here stakes are high enough that I want, and, and you know, there are so many volunteers out there and I'm really struck by your, the numbers that you gave me, um, that uh, we can afford to not pay. This way we will select the people who are most committed. We will preempt any worries, if it were an ethical worry that, People do it because they're unemployed and poor, da, 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 praying on the vulnerable. None of that here. So just to be on the safe side. But, but other people might disagree. I mean, uh, some of the volunteers, uh, I, th I think, are saying, uh, look, uh, I'm not doing it for the money, but I also need an income during those weeks. So <laughs> it's a complex matter. Maybe make sure the food's really good or something like that. <laughs> Great internet uh, access. Yeah, <laughs> I only have one last question for you, slightly unrelated, but related to your profession. What is the most interesting thing to you about being a bioethicist? Gosh, uh, um, um, I mean, this stuff is really interesting. It's crazy to do it. You're, you're hearing my four-year-old in the background, and uh, you know, to juggle all these papers and all that. But 
it's totally worth it. Um, um, it's not always as interesting. I think a general thing that is interesting in bioethics for somebody like me, I come from, my ba early background was in political philosophy. Um, I want to do very pro-equality things, egalitarian things in the world and have these kind of big ideas. And People are much more willing to be egalitarian, pro-equality when it comes to healthcare. And when it comes to money, say, or salaries or housing, or so it's an area where people like me don't get the door slammed in their faces, um, <laughs> and that's exciting. What do you? Sorry, just a little bit of clarification. What do you mean in regards to healthcare? Why do you think that that is? There is something. So a famous bioethicist called Norman Daniels uh, identified this. He he talked about um, how healthcare is special. For whatever reason, people are, are not completely egalitarian, we know, especially in the United States of America. Yeah, we're Canadian, so we have like um, universal healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, it just, it's interesting. That's why I heard, as an American, I'm like curious. I'm like, oh, because we don't know as much about the culture there, but yeah. Right, so in Canada in particular, for at least in the past, you've had a system in which it was highly egalitarian in that it was actually difficult to upgrade on the public system uh, to get a doctor who would provide health. Whereas, you know, if you think about other economic spheres, what you're going to say that even with my own money, I'm not allowed to buy a bigger car than the others. I mean, what, where is this coming? Oh, overreach. So it's just the case that in many societies, there is more willingness to be, to care about equality and about everybody um, in, in the sphere of healthcare than in other areas of life. And that's uh, striking, and it's also comfortable to work in 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 the area of healthcare. Given that, that's, that's really nice. Yeah, that's very interesting. And um, yeah, I guess there's something like to our core that we do ultimately want people to be healthy and safe. Versus like I would, someone wants a more expensive, have the ability to have a more expensive car for somebody else. And it seems like it sort of makes you think about life and death more. Yeah, it's a little right. bit of an equalizer. Yeah, like it feels like a. It's you know, fascinating. See, something. bioethics, fascinating. <laughs> Philosophy, fascinating. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking yeah. time to chat with us today. And we'll send you the results from our, yeah, you, know, you can read and how biased this question was. We just right. wrote it one Sunday when we were reading um, articles about you and just like quickly did it. But we'll send it to you because it is fascinating. And we do have people reaching out to us now saying like, well, how, how do, do we take part in these trials? Like we like, that's why we really wanted to talk to you because there's obviously such an important we're in a historical important moment and these trials will speed up the process of a vaccine so if you're listening that's obviously something that we need and want to be talking about so thank you so much for your work thank you guys so much that was great bye ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.